Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Myrick Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. I'm Lindsay Monteith, a clinical research psychologist and investigator in the Rocky Mountain Myrick, and I'll be your host today. We're going to focus on intimate partner violence, or IPV for short, and suicide. We're very honored to have two distinguished guests with us today who are here to discuss these important topics. Dr. Tita Franklin is the National Director of Suicide Prevention in the Department of Veterans Affairs, and Dr. Leanne Bruce is the National Program Manager of the VA Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us here today. I'd like to start off by learning a little more about you, including your background, and how you became involved in suicide prevention. Hi, this is Keita Franklin, and I'm, I'm happy to be here, and thank you so much for bringing together both of these two very important topics. I am a licensed social worker. I have a specialization in working with children and families, and um, in my current role, I'm working with the VA leadership for all matters pertaining to suicide prevention, but I have had a a long history of working across all the branches of the military in, in as a general social worker where I've worked in areas like um, child welfare and domestic violence and clinical and prevention treatment as well as administrating a, a variety of programs. And hi, I am Leanne Bruce. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with over 25 years of experience working with individuals and families impacted by domestic violence and intimate partner violence also across a variety of programs and settings uh, from the community to the Department of Defense and the VA. In my current role, I serve as the National Program Manager for the VA's Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program, and I received my PhD in social work research from the University of Louisville and also serve as an adjunct faculty for Western Kentucky University School of Social Work. Well, thank you very much, Keita and Leanne. We are very excited to have you here today. I think today's podcast is a really great example of the collaborative approach that different programs are, are taking within the VA. Um, with respect to addressing intimate partner violence and preventing suicide, could you speak to the concerns about the relationship between IPV and suicide? Yes, I think both the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention and the Intimate Partner Violence Program recognize that suicide prevention and IPV are known public health problems. And with that in mind, they share common risk factors. And so things like a history of child abuse, um, experiencing trauma, poverty, even, even things like a lack of education or employment or challenges with housing or food insecurity, institutional racism and, and gender inequality, they're all known to contribute to both intimate partner violence and suicide risks. We see within the programs, there's a lot of shared risk across both areas. We also recognize that the presence of intimate partner violence can also increase the risk for suicide, and in some cases, this poses a risk for homicide as well. The presence of suicidal ideation for one or both of the partners in a violent relationship also increases the risk of, and severity uh, for intimate partner violence. So there is a relationship there that is concerning. As you're both talking about this, I can really start to understand why it is that your offices are teaming up together. Um, and before we, we talk further about the intersection of intimate partner violence and suicide, um, I think it'd be helpful if we just kind of define what intimate partner violence is. So when you say IPV, um, what do you mean by that? Yes, intimate partner violence is not a term everyone is familiar with, but it really points to a specific form of domestic violence that occurs between two people who have a close intimate relationship. The VA has adopted the definition posed by the CDC, which describes intimate partner violence as the physical, sexual, or psychological harm, including stalking behavior, 
by a current or former partner. It can occur on a continuum of frequency and severity ranging from mild occasional emotional abuse to chronic severe battering or even death. We know that IPV occurs in heterosexual or same-sex relationships and it really does not require sexual intimacy or cohabitation. Thank you for providing that definition, which I think is very helpful. Um, it sounds like the different types of behaviors that can occur as part of intimate partner violence can really range quite a bit in terms of the specific type of harm, um, the frequency as, as well as the severity. Yes, that is true. We intentionally use this wide range uh, from mild verbal altercations to severe battering because our goal is to raise awareness about all types of intimate partner violence, to encourage early intervention, and to support prevention. Can you tell us more about how intimate partner violence and suicide are related? Yes, we talked earlier a little bit about how there's a sense of um, shared common risks, but when you dig even a little bit deeper, you start to see that at the core of both intimate partner violence and suicide is often an increase in feelings of helplessness. And we know that helplessness contributes to increased suicide risk. It also contributes to areas around intimate partner violence. In, in part, what we know is people that are struggling with intimate partner violence may also, it, it tends to decrease someone's sense of control. And when they have less control over their situation, they, it, it leads towards feelings of helplessness. And so I think that that's just one right out of the gate common factor that, that, that ties together both the intimate partner violence and suicide. I would extend folks thinking to the area of substance misuse as a common risk factor. Um, people are more likely to perpetuate violence of all kinds when their ability to control impulses is impaired. And so with impairment, um, for example, when they're intoxicated and, and things like that. So even in the absence of a, a diagnosable substance use disorder, intoxication increases the risk for both perpetrating violence or experiencing violence. And then it, may, it, it also increases the risk for acting on a suicidal impulse. And so these are just important things to think about for people in the field that might think that you're working specifically in the area of, of intimate partner violence and or maybe you're working in the area of suicide to think through these things more, more holistically since they can be related. Another important factor when you're thinking about intimate partner violence and suicide has to do with mental illness. And while we know that suicide is um, not always related to mental illness, we know that there are a number of instances where it is. And equally so, mental illness, if it's not treated, it can increase suicide risk. And those who experience intimate partner violence in any other form of traumatic event, they're more likely than the general population to develop mental illness and then that has issues around anxiety, depression, and even post-traumatic stress disorder. So experiencing intimate partner violence, it can prevent people from seeking treatment for mental illness. Um, we know that isolation is a key factor here. And it, particularly for those who don't feel capable of leaving an abusing relationship, that can become a, um, a, difficult, a difficult time for people. So they may associate stigma both with help with seeking help for mental illness and then also with experiencing intimate partner violence, just the stigma associated with being in that type of a relationship. That is so true, Lindsay. We find that in the intimate partner violence program as well, which is why one of the primary tasks for the intimate partner violence assistance program coordinators at each site is to build those partnerships with community agencies and resources to better serve veterans and their partners who seek services in the community. Uh, we wanna make sure that the community is, is ready to receive them and understand the unique needs of veterans. 
And Lindsay, it's also important to note here when you think about each VA medical facility having an intimate partner violence um, subject matter expert, we also have suicide prevention coordinators on the field. And so there's quite a bit of synergy and power between, I think, the two of, of those two communities lashing up and, and working collectively on a, on a plan to get after at-risk behaviors and at-risk signs and symptoms that they might see in their community when they're designing their programs. That's really fantastic to hear about, Kita. Thank you. Um, yes, we have about 400 of them across the entire VA. We're in the process of surging that number up even, uh, I think, by 300 more. We're working on a hire initi hiring initiative for that, but that, that they are available and um, eager to coordinate with the IPV um, subject matter folks as well. Great. And so it sounds like they are they're collaborating and partnering together to really try to address the intersection of IPV and suicide. Yes, I think having them work together is just um, more brings more solutions to the to the problem in light of the fact that intimate partner violence is so complex, as is suicide. Having them work together um, will, I think, pay dividends down the road. Historically, research on IPV experiences among veterans um, has predominantly focused on female veterans. From the research that has been conducted. How prevalent is IPV in the veteran population, and are there gender differences in terms of who's most likely to experience IPV? That's a great question. Um, I, I like to point out first that the, in the general population, it is cited that one in three women and one in four men experience intimate partner violence across their lifetimes. Uh, some studies with veterans have estimated that in that population, they may be twice as likely to experience intimate partner violence in their lifetimes due to a variety of uh, family stressors, personal stressors, all the things that we've talked about before with regards uh, to the veteran population being um, higher uh, separation from family, trauma, uh, deployments, um, all those kinds of things. So, and not to say that they cause it, but it definitely creates additional stress on families. Uh, in, internally, to our, since we've been screening for intimate partner violence in, in the VA and in multiple settings um, for the past four, almost five years now, our internal data shows that women veterans in primary care report a lifetime of intimate partner violence at rates as much as 48 to 86 percent. So we know that it is, is definitely a, a significant concern within the veteran population and that intimate partner violence doesn't occur just in a vacuum, as we've talked about with the collaboration with suicide prevention. Intimate partner violence is a key factor in suicide, homelessness, chronic pain, uh, traumatic brain injuries, uh, all of a lot of different things that we're concerned about with veterans. We, we know that the threat of intimate partner violence can run through to exacerbate a lot of other different uh, social, emotional, and uh, physical and medical conditions. So it's something that we want to really uh, address in a very in intentional way and a very comprehensive and integrated way working with all of the partners, uh, such as suicide uh, prevention coordinators and so forth in the medical centers. Now with male veterans, uh, we have a lot less research at this point, uh, and we're not screening widely necessarily, but my goal is eventually that I believe that all veterans need to be screened for intimate partner violence. And when we do screen uh, at the sites that are screening, if they do disclose uh, intimate partner violence, some of the next questions do have to do with uh, suicide, uh, suicidality for the, uh, for the patient as well as the partner. 
So if I'm hearing correctly, um, when someone screams positive for intimate partner violence, then in some situations that prompts them to be screened further for suicidal thoughts or suicide risk. Absolutely. If they screen positive for just disclosing that they have some form of intimate partner violence, even if it's very mild, uh, we provide universal education for anyone, whether they screen positive or negative. Uh, but then we go on if they are positive and conduct a further risk assessment, with, which also includes inquiring about suicidality. How frequent are suicide, suicide attempts, and suicidal ideation among those who experience intimate partner violence? We know that those who experience IPV are at increased risk for suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, or death by suicide. But an additional concern when IPV is present in a relationship is that it may also increase the concern about homicide as well. We know that 72% of all murder-suicides involve, involve an intimate partner. 72%, those numbers are, are striking and it seems to really highlight how important it is to have efforts to prevent IPV, also to address them. So Keita and Leanne, you both have spoken to this some already, but what places someone at risk for experiencing or using intimate partner violence? I think one thing that we know about intimate partner violence is that it's, it's usually not an isolated incident in an individual's life. So at the point, traditionally, when we find out about it, even as social workers, it's, it's often happened over time in their history. Um, traditionally, it follows a pattern of violence and it, it tends to escalate in frequency and severity. So when we see things like poor relationships, including those that involve intimate partner violence, um, we know that they're likely to increase an individual's sense of just feeling a sense of burdensomeness, and it decreases their sense of connectedness, and both of these are risk factors for suicide. Kita, I really appreciate you pointing that out, how veterans um, and their partners uh, deal with those issues related to the lack of connectedness with one another, trying to rebuild relationships after being apart for so long, um, and how that feeling of uh, a lack of trust and distrust and, and inability to connect with others really does impact uh, veterans and their partners in their relationships. Within the veteran population, we often see this contextual, situational, and bi-directional forms of IPV in which relationship stressors overcome the individual or the couple's existing coping skills. When identified early or when the IPV is low acuity, such as frequent arguing and name calling and threatening, intervention is available in the VA and in the community that can be very successful in helping those couples build healthy communication and intimacy skills, preserving that and promoting healthy relationships. Even when the IPV behaviors are more severe, we do have treatment modalities and intervention available to help. I think that's a really important thing to emphasize here, that there are treatments available to help couples that are experiencing this and that can address intimate partner violence. Along those lines, um, you mentioned earlier some risk factors for suicide, including that intimate partner violence can be a risk factor. Um, how can protective factors help offset risk factors for suicide? I think it's such a good question, and I'm so glad you asked it because too many times in our field, I think we focus on risk singularly, and risk is definitely critically important in all that we do, and at the same time, um, looking at risk alone is, is difficult because it sometimes can be fluid. I know specifically within the field of, of suicide that somebody's risk factor can, can, can go up and come down, and, and there's just a lot of, of, of factors at play, and so when you think about them in the context of 
protective factors, it gives a more holistic look to the state of the issue. And so one of the most important things I think we've talked about on this podcast so far has to do with connectedness and just this sense of having social support and connect to um, a positive relationship to another human being is just so helpful. And and um, one thing that I know is that when people are connected to other people, it, it also helps bring uh, improve their access to mental health care because if they have a strong relationship with a significant other or even a friend or a colleague that might help facilitate them getting into health care or mental health care if that's needed, and it might also help with their um, just ability to problem solve and bring positive coping skills to the table and perhaps eliminate things like black and white thinking or thinking that, you know, they're a burden or that there's no way out when they when they have that strong, close relationship. It's definitely a, a protective factor. You see it. You see it all over the literature in terms of social support and um, and just being there for one another. So it's, I think that's an important question for this podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, and I completely agree. Uh, our program recognizes that this is a very uh, vitally important piece uh, and that IPV can can shatter those relationships that are so protective. So that does increase the risk of both intimate partner violence escalating as well as the mental health and well-being of the, the two partners in the dyad. In our program, although the name is Intimate Partner Violence Assistance, a big focus of our program is to reach out to families who are struggling, couples who are struggling, and helping them to find the resources they need to maintain that healthy or promote a healthy relationship. And there's so many ways that we can do that. But we think that that is so important, not only in prevent, helping to prevent depression, uh, suicidality, and homelessness, and all the things that come with the breakdown of those strong relationships. I'm, I'm so glad to hear about the emphasis on um, bolstering protective factors, which is, is something that's very important. Um, and one question that I had is, you know, you both mentioned, um, you know, throughout this podcast, I think and the notion that sometimes it's very difficult for people to seek uh, mental health care if they're experiencing this, or it seems like um, in the realm of violence, it, it, there might be concerns about if someone discloses it um, to someone. Um, one question that I had is for family members, friends, or providers who are wanting to be attuned to this and to help people if they notice that um, they might be experiencing it, are there signs that they should be looking out for, or kind of aware of um, that might cue them into someone possibly experiencing intimate partner violence? I'm happy to share some information that might help with this one and I'd, I'd be eager to hear what Leanne has to say as well. But I know that when someone is just not themselves and you notice small nuances, small, um, small behaviors, if they're normally a very social person and they tend to be very quiet and isolated, um, I know that that can, that can present as a potential risk that just offer, offers a friend or a family member the opportunity to ask the question, are you doing okay? Um, and just kind of share your perspective and reflect back on, on what you're seeing in the other one. I know Leanne might be able to share also more specifics in the area of just um, physical things that you might see on somebody who might be in a, in a relationship like this, as well as other emotional um, risks that might be apparent to a friend or a family member. Absolutely. Uh, both intimate partner violence and suicide prevention are everyone's responsibility. So we really do encourage uh, providers, staff members in the VA. We do a lot of training to help them know how to talk to someone about intimate partner violence, of course, with our screening, but also just if they suspect it or um, 
are concerned that that might be uh, an issue. And, and some of the things internally in a healthcare system uh, to watch for, of course, are the obvious outer signs of abuse with bruising, uh, frequent injuries that are, are difficult to explain and so forth. But really also so many chronic issues, uh, unexplainable issues or, or hard to diagnose issues are available, uh, you know, are, are prevalent in a healthcare setting that people can pick up on and, and maybe um, ask someone because of course living in a abusive relationship can exacerbate uh, emotional stresses and issues, mental uh, health issues such as as Keita mentioned, anxiety uh, and um, depression and so forth. But also uh, we, we have a lot of concerns about traumatic brain injury that can be caused by intimate partner violence. So signs of traumatic brain injury, um, forgetfulness, uh, dizziness, things like that uh, should really be paid attention to and looked into because we know that through either uh, banging heads um, on walls or hit being hit in the head or strangulation, which often um, is associated with intimate partner violence, are things that providers and, and medical staff can be attuned to to think about, you know, wondering if and exploring if intimate partner violence is uh, is a factor. Uh, and then just friends and, and concerned family members. Uh, when someone is, is really isolated, uh, we, we are very concerned sometimes about uh, control if someone is being isolated from their family and friends. Uh, they don't have access to finances or a car or the phone is being controlled. Things like that can really, uh, as Keita mentioned, uh, break down that feeling of connectedness and that ability to reach out to someone. So absolutely, there's so many resources within the VA and the community uh, that if someone is concerned, if you're concerned, it's important to ask, to take someone aside in a safe setting and ask them. Uh, we operate in the VA, our program operates from a trauma-informed approach, so we're very cognizant of, of what going through trauma does, um, how it affects people, and so we're, we try to be very sensitive on how we're screening, how we're asking the questions, where we're asking the questions, is that person safe, even whether it's safe to document in their chart, um, anything that they tell us about this because uh, just making sure that sometimes in con controlling situations people have access to things like that. So just really thoughtfully thinking about how to approach that person and how to uh, put information and resources in their hands so that they can take some control of the situation themselves. And, and so that's another reason why we advocate for the use of universal education. And, putting uh, brochures and posters and wallet cards and little apps and things like that out there for people to access in a safe way uh, because we know they may not tell us anyway. We may ask a million times, but they may never feel comfortable enough to tell us, but they may take those resources and call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, or in you know, Keita's case with suicide prevention, they may call and chat with somebody at the hotline uh, crisis line and that sort of thing. So we know that, that people are doing that even if they're not telling us um, that, that this is a situation for them. Well, it sounds like both of your offices are doing a tremendous amount to, to address intimate partner violence and suicide. And I appreciate um, Kita and Leanne, both of you being willing to share some of those signs um, that someone is experiencing intimate partner violence, which seems very wide ranging in terms of physical signs, kind of some chronic unexplained issues, um, financial cues, as well as these 
pretty potentially marked um, interpersonal changes or behaviors. And I, I wanted to ask, um, Kita, is there anything you'd like to share about all the work that your office is doing within VA to reduce suicide risk among veterans? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. One of the most important things I always like to share when we think about how the VA is getting after suicide and trying to work on issues of suicide prevention is that our approach is truly focused on all veterans. And so I think people may have this um, tendency to think that we're trying to prevent veteran suicide with, with just those that are enrolled in VA healthcare, but that's absolutely not the case. So we know that not every veteran receives their healthcare at VA. And so our, our goal for preventing suicide is, is really to focus on the entire 20 million veteran po population and to find innovative ways to serve all of them that may never seek care in our system. And so for that reason, it's, um, it's important we, that we focus on more of a community-based model. I and mean, in the field, we call it a public health approach. But know that it means that we, we try to bring multiple partners to the table and multiple evidence-based solution sets when we're trying to design our, our programming inside the VA. We do have within our, um, within one of our bundled approaches is the veteran and military crisis line. And this is a crisis line that connects veterans um, and their friends and family members um, with qualified caring VA responders. It's a confidential toll-free hotline. There's also a chat capability, a text capability. Um, if it's okay, I'll just go ahead and provide the number. It's, it's 1-800-273-8255. And then you press one, and then that will allow you to do all of those things that I just mentioned, chat, um, text, or, or talk online with a, with a qualified expert. And it's 24-7, and so this is open 365 days a year, and it really helps people at, at their time of greatest needs, and, and we've been um, able to make quite a bit of actual saves through the use of this veteran crisis line when people make the call and reach out. One of our other approaches has also been, um, I think we talked earlier in the podcast about our suicide prevention coordinators, which are really our boots on the ground people doing this work every day. And they partner with broad coalitions and inside the VA systems and outside and they do outreach. But we actually have a website and a, um, a locator. If you go to our um, VA mental health care website, you see this suicide prevention locator where you can enter your zip code and, and really drill down and find who your local SPC, which is Suicide Prevention Coordinator, you can find who they are. And the last sort of resource that I would offer that's part of our bundled public, public health approach, and maybe folks have heard of it, it's called SAVE, S-A-V-E. And this is a training, it's a 25-minute training that we launched in collaboration with Psych Armor Institute. And it features one of our very own, Dr. Megan McCarthy, where um, it's a, a research-informed training protocol that brings together all that people need to know when they're trying to prevent veteran suicide. It's, it's interactive and engaging, and we have that. It's, it's available for free on a website, um, psycharmor.org. And if you go drill down, you'll see um, courses in the area of SAVE. It, it's literally labeled S-A-V-E training, um, which provides a, a nice acronym for teaching people how to engage with um, veterans that may be at risk, um, you know, what to do and how to talk to somebody who's struggling and what to say, what not to say, and, and all of those sorts of things. Thank you, Kita. Um, so from what I'm hearing, there are a lot of different resources available, both for veterans and their loved ones and providers, um, ranging from the Veterans Crisis Line, Suicide Prevention Coordinators, which people can locate online, um, as well as the SAVE training. 
I think that um, working together across the intimate partner violence space and the suicide space and using the best trainings that we have available and working um, hand in hand, um, it, I, I think that that's um, definitely the way forward when we, when we think about this program. We've talked a lot about all the different resources that are available in the VA that are geared towards suicide prevention. Um, I think it'd be helpful next to talk a little bit more about the different resources available within VA for addressing intimate partner violence. Absolutely. The mission of the Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program is to implement a comprehensive and integrated system of services aimed at ending intimate partner violence for our veterans, their partners, as well as VA staff who are impacted by IPV. This is accomplished by providing prevention efforts through education and awareness, establishing collaborative relationships, as I've mentioned before, implementing screening and early identification for, for those who both use and experience intimate partner violence, and offering therapeutic interventions. We obviously partner with many phenomenal VA programs, such as the suicide prevention programs, uh, but we also partner internally with the couples behavioral therapy programs in mental health, vet centers, warrior to soulmate programs, and other workshops that help strengthen and promote healthy relationships. We also have evidence-based trauma-informed programs such as Strength at Home for veterans who use or are at risk of using intimate partner violence in their relationships. These programs and interventions address not only the identified IPV behaviors, but also allow the veteran the opportunity to explore how their trauma has affected his or her ability to connect with others, regulate emotion, and build trust again. In addition, along with our IPV coordinators uh, collaborating with their local community advocacy agencies and, and domestic violence coalitions, on the national level, we also have uh, many partnerships with programs. Uh, one such program, of course, is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which uh, has entered into an agreement with us. We uh, support each other uh, through the sharing of information. We've uh, done some cross-training with their staff so that they better understand how to ask about veteran status and veterans' issues on the hotline. Um, and so I think it's just a really wonderful partnership, and they can be accessed at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. Uh, they also have chat capabilities. Um, a, a quick escape button so people can access their services uh, to find out some more information and resources for domestic violence and intimate partner violence. So for any veterans listening to this podcast today who have or are currently experiencing intimate partner violence or suicidal thoughts, um, or if someone is concerned about a friend or loved one, what is one thing you would like to say to them? I would like every veteran to know that we are working to end suicide and intimate partner violence, and we, we will leave no rock unturned while we, while we work on this issue. And, and then I would also just offer that veterans are our most important resource in this fight against suicide specifically, and veterans have, um, have been well-trained on helping each other, taking care of each other, and working alongside one another in the context of peer support. And so veteran to veteran, um, I, I offer that we help each other, be there for one another, and do everything that you can to um, alleviate risk and improve access to care and 
and, and be there for one another. Um, and, and I know that's specific to the suicide piece, but certainly being there for one another applies to intimate partner violence as well across the board. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't just mention perpetrating intimate partner violence is absolutely a crime. And so the person that is on the receiving end or experiencing it, it's never their fault. And so I would want veterans to know that just in case there is this piece around shame or embarrassment or um, guilt or not wanting to come forward, they, they should know they're not alone. And so it's really, it's okay if you're not okay and, and we're, we're here for you and we will help you. Absolutely. And just to chime in, uh, I, I think the be there is a wonderful way to think about it that because we are there for our veterans and we're, we're engaging in this, building this network um, to uh, work together internally and with our community partners and resources in order to, to be there for our veterans and their families as well to make sure that if they're experiencing intimate partner violence or problems within their relationship, that they know that they can turn to us. Adopting the whole health and whole person approach, we know that the healthcare setting is the most effective place to talk about intimate partner violence and how that might be affecting someone's health and well-being. Studies have shown that women who talk to their healthcare providers about IPV are four times more likely to use an intervention and even 2.6 times more likely to exit an abusive relationship. So we want to be open and there for our veterans. So I urge uh, veterans who may be listening to this podcast or someone who's concerned about a friend or a family member to reach out to the VA uh, and, and let us know. Let your healthcare provider know. Ask to speak to the suicide prevention coordinator or the intimate partner violence coordinator or a social worker or, or someone you trust within the VA and, and tell them what's going on because we really are here to help and we have lots of resources um, that at our disposal to help veterans find exactly what they need to overcome some of these difficult situations. And while we don't want to minimize the complexity and severity of intimate partner violence, I think it's important that we reinforce the belief that our belief that recovery is possible and that those who have experienced and or used intimate partner violence can lead better, more enriching lives with support and assistance. And our offices and caring staff are here to help. Um, if it's Thank okay you. with you also, um, Lindsay, I would, um, I would take a moment to share that September is Suicide Prevention Month. And so this is the time yeah. when we're trying to focus the nation on really raising their consciousness on the fact that everyone can do something for Suicide Prevention Month in, in the context of our Be There campaign. Um, so small, simple acts, saying um, hello to a, a veteran when you pass them, asking somebody if they've served or worn the uniform. There's just so many things people can do just as part of everyday life. And September, we're, we're kicking all that off. So I, I just thought I'd share that really quick. <laughs> Also, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month as well. So this is another opportunity. Uh, last year, we ran a campaign, a pledge to screen and pledge to intervene, where we, we um, encouraged everyone to become involved in what they can do to help end intimate partner violence. Thank you, Leanne. And I'm, what I'm hearing is that really everyone, regardless of their role, can play a role in addressing both intimate partner violence and in um, preventing suicide. For people who are interested in in supporting more during um, September and October, are there websites they can go to to find out more? Yes, absolutely. We have a website that has a variety of this information present on it, and it's veterancrisisline.net backslash be there. 
And for uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, there's a number of sites that you can access. We have an internal website to the Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program that's public-facing. Thank you, Keita. Thank you, Leanne. And for listeners out there today, all of these resources will be available at www.myrec, which is M-I-R-E-C-C dot V-A dot gov slash vision 19. Thank you all for joining us today. I want to extend a particular thanks to our guests today, um, Dr. Franklin and Dr. Bruce. We really appreciate you joining our podcast um, and hope to do this again. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having us.